Hello, and welcome to ClapperCast, the global film podcast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Diego Andalus, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. Ewan Gledo. Hello. And Kyle Milner. Hi, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we are discussing the surprise Borat sequel, Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, and Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson's Synchronic. So let's start with Borat. Fourteen years ago, I released a movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee land to carry out secret mission. I go to America! People may recognize my face. I would need disguises. This man is a sex criminal? No, no sex criminal. I will take this to be a fat <laughs> like American man. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> 14 years after making a film about his journey across the USA, Borat risks his life and limb when he returns to America with his young daughter and reveals more about the American culture, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the political elections. What do you guys think about this film? Because I know it came out to much buzz and there was a lot of news coming out around the time of its release. I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I rewatched the first Borat a couple of days ago just to make sure, you know, that, that the series was good. Because Ali G in the house wasn't that good and that's a different Sasha Baron Cohen character. But Borat, the first one, is very good. The second one is great. I think on par comedically and it takes a different tone with its messaging. The first Borat film was more about revealing this facade of America, the dark underbelly of it, but now that's sort of the surface of America. So this sequel's more about showcasing that and highlighting how far we've regressed rather than travelled from the first to the second Borat film and how we've changed this as a society. And not all of those changes are particularly good. So I also just recently rechecked out the first Borat and really, really enjoyed it. Going into this film, obviously really excited. We live in this very like politically rich time. Seems like the perfect time for a film like this. And I ended up being much more mixed on it. It's not bad. I think it gets genuinely funny, but I found that it just felt so forced at times. And this one takes on much more of like a stronger, not even narrative, I guess you could say, because the first one has, you know, a story through a line. But this one felt like multiple situations were just more forced, more crafted, more staged, if you want to say that just felt less funny, if that makes sense. Um, you take this really funny character, but you put them in this kind of stage setting and it just loses some of its charm. I also think the social commentary where good is not as good as the first film, especially towards the end, and I'm sure we'll get there, right? There's like huge stuff, been blowing up Twitter, been blowing up news and seeing what it actually is in the film. I was like, oh, okay. So we're just blowing this out of the water for other reasons, but not really because it's, you know, a huge thing. It's kind of similar to how I felt about Bill and Ted 3. Like, it's fun, but it's nothing incredible. I'll take my original. It's inoffensive, but ultimately it's um, nothing incredible, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I feel pretty similarly. Even though it didn't completely map the hilarity, at least for me, the first film, that's something we can certainly go into deeper. I, th I think the reasons for that are not necessarily just, just writing, but also kind of a, a cultural thing in various ways. But nonetheless, um, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it very interesting that it had quite a strong narrative thread, the, which of course the first one did too, but I feel this went a bit heavier on that rather than these just sort of like prank sort of stuff. And, and in particular... The, the actress, uh, I did have her name pulled up, 
Maria Bakalova. She was a really pleasant surprise. She absolutely kept up with Cohen and yeah, really kind of stole the show in a way, I think. So definitely did enjoy it, even if not necessarily, you know, as much as the first or it didn't surpass the first for me. I think it's it's interesting what you both said there about the narrative being a lot heavier. It definitely is. And I think to some degree that's because Borat sort of as a character has become this cultural sensation where everybody recognizes him. So I think it's sort of an inevitable choice to take it narratively that way and introduce a secondary character in the form of Borat's daughter. It's a good performance from Maria Bakalova. It it doesn't detract from the Borat skits. I think the the use of different costumes and characters is sort of justified when you think about the cultural impact Borat's had and how recognisable he is. I think that there are times where you sort of wish, okay, this 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 is perfect for the Borat character, but obviously because of how well-known he is, you can't exactly insert him into that scene. Yeah, I mean, I watched the first one just a couple weeks ago and compared to the second, because people are always asking me, okay, so like, did you prefer the first one or the second one? And honestly, I really don't know because on one hand, the first one, I say from a comedic standpoint, it is much funnier. And I, I don't think there's really a disagreement in there. The first one is obviously much funnier. However, the second one does have a stronger narrative and if we were looking at it from a narrative, like film pr- perspective, then I say the second one is much stronger. However, most people, obviously there's those exceptions, but a lot of people, the majority of people who turn on Borat are going to be hoping for something as hilarious or even more hilarious than the first one. And I don't think that's what this film is. But if you go in expecting like a compelling narrative, yes, some funny bits, but more about the narrative rather than just the comedic part of it, then I feel like you'll enjoy it. And yeah, I feel like that is partially because, I mean, they took some risks, but I don't know what happened in terms of like the final cut, because at least from the stories I've heard and some of the behind the scenes clips I've seen from the second film, it seemed like they had a lot of stuff that would have been pretty risky, but they, like, I felt at least in the final cut of the film, it was not as risky as as the first one. Because I heard a story about um, at the gun rally, for instance, apparently at the end of the gun rally, he had to run into his car and he oh, like he was super close to dying. He had to wear a bulletproof vest, but that wasn't shown in the film. I saw a behind the scenes clip. Apparently like the young daughter, when she was in the, as like the fake reporter, she got to the White House. She talked to Donald Trump Jr. She was in the same rooms as Donald Trump and they showed none of that in the film. So I'm a little perplexed as to why they chose not to show that because the weakness for me was the fact that it didn't take enough risks. It did take risks, but again, this is comparing to the first one. The first one, one of the riskiest films ever. And this one did just, it did not hold up in terms of risks. In, in regard to those risks, I think the second Borat film has definitely fewer risks. I think they're not, not, not to cast a shadow on the first film. I, I do prefer the first one to the second one. But those risks in the second film are bigger, I guess you could say. They're, they're more... They're, they're in the stage of political view there. You know, you've got Borat dressed as you know, Donald Trump running into the convention when Mike Pence is speaking. You've, you've got high publicity rather than high risk, I think, is the trade-off here. And it's it's not a bad trade-off. I mean, it does, there are some great moments. There are some very funny moments. I think it, definitely what you said, Diego, about there being less in the way of comedy uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot less to, to really take away from this one. I do think it, it muses on the sort of political aspects a lot 
more than the first one did, where Borat, the first film, was just, let's see if we can get this character into a series of bizarre situations. The second one has an aim with its story, and it takes it, and it does it well, but I don't think it's quite as well-paced as it could be. It does feel clunky. Like you said, there's a lot of moments where it feels like the meeting with Eric Trump, why wasn't that included? That was like a one of those scenes at the end when the credits are playing, and it's it feels bizarre not to include that because that's a high-profile name, and if, if this film has been made to you know mock and satirize American politics currently, then that feels like an important scene to put in. Yeah, I do wonder um, if the the actual lack of, of major risk taking as much in the way that the first film did is is maybe just a limitation of the passage of time, really, just the changing environment that the film is actually being made. And of course, when you're you know making a film like this, where you are pushing people's buttons and trying to get a reaction, it's always potentially dangerous. I mean, the film itself acknowledges you know that a lot has changed since the first film, and and it is very difficult to approach these kinds of topics without inciting you know some kind of reaction um it's not so much about digging up these these deep-rooted sort of biases in people it's they're kind of wearing it on their sleeve now right people feel more comfortable particularly in the u.s to to not have like a, a deep down shameful feeling about something but to actually wear that on your sleeve and be proud of it so I, I was curious watching it thinking was it ever possible for this film to actually do the exact same thing the first one did you know is it not just a limitation of script writing or editing or storytelling but you know is there an inherent limit to it purely because of of just the passage of time and and how things are and how difficult that might make it to do that I think you'll have to look at the morals of like the comedic. Obviously, this is of the like this political like modern comedy. This is a film that obviously was in production, you know, into COVID, very recent. And when you have things like the Black Lives Matter movement, when you have literally the coronavirus costing hundreds of thousands of lives in America, like I could see this movie looking on paper and saying morally we need to be careful with this comedy and not push too far. Because also right now in the pandemic and stuff, like especially here in America, like. I know a lot of people probably are not down for the super like edgy comedy and all these very relevant things. You have films like 76 Days and Totally Under Control that's showing these really haunting effects. So I could see the movie trying to be like not tone deaf in the sense of be aware of the pres like the time it's being made in and not wanting to push politically. Granted, you know, it's Borat as a key identity that's part of your like gimmick. Maybe now is not the best time to do Borat too then. But I could see that this movie wants to be aware and not push too far in certain directions and still be something that won't alienate audiences with how far it goes. I'd actually say as a counter argument to that, I feel like kind of in the same political climate, like if maybe if the show that I'm gonna about to talk about um, hadn't been made, then yeah, I would see your point. But I feel like, I don't know if you guys have seen Who is America, which is a limited series that Cohen did uh, with like a vast array of characters. I think he had four characters and he would kind of go through those same Borat interview situations. And it would, it's more of a sketch show, but it's still that same concept. I found that similar to Borat, it was like trying to be more of an exploration of American politics, but they were still able to take a lot of risks. They actually got quite a few people fired from their positions, I believe. They had some things that I don't think can be said on this podcast. They had Dick Cheney signing a waterboard. They had OJ Simpson getting incredibly close to admitting 
that he murdered his wife. Like these things that were incredibly risky. This was, I believe, in 2016 after Trump was elected and he was still able to pull it off. I do think that it was critically mixed. So that may be what caused the, the course of action to change. But I personally enjoyed it more than Borat too. And I feel like it was still an even more effective exploration of American politics in that comedic sense than Borat too. I agree with what you said there, Diego. I think it's it, it feels like a benchmark for how far we've sort of progressed and regressed the society has gone on. And I feel like to a, to an extent, Cohen sort of made this Borat 2 production and thought, all right, well, we can give it another go. We can sort of tap into American politics and culture again. Because that, that was a theme in the first Borat, obviously not to the same extent, but he did have, you know, he was singing the American national anthem at a, I think it was a horse show or a rally of some sort. And, you know, he was interviewing Republican senators and stuff like that. So nothing's really changed in that regard. The only real change is the context and the attitudes rather than what he wants to say and what he wants to achieve. And it, it's like you said, Kyle, earlier, where Americans in politics, they wear their beliefs on their sleeve. So the first film coaxes that out of them. The second film is just an analysis of what he can see. There's no need to coax anything out of them with a character or a setup or anything like that, because it, it's more or less what they would say and do anyways, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a stark, horrifying reminder of sort of what's going on currently. Let's move into spoilers and specifically both the scene with Giuliani, the, the potentially incriminating scene with Giuliani, and that last twist reveal that Borat, in fact, was patient zero of the COVID pandemic. So honestly, both of those things shocked me. And I wasn't, especially that last reveal, I was not expecting that at all. And for a second there, I was like, wait, did they really go that far? Because as Carson was saying before, it could come off as insensitive, but I think they handled it in a way that was like more funny and self-reflective than something that was tone deaf. So what did you guys think about both of those things in the last act? I don't think they meant any ill will with the coronavirus joke. I think that just tied up nicely. It's, you know, that that's definitely something they thought of in post-production. They were like, all right, we need to go back and change this. That's a perfect ending to this. I think this is genuinely going to be like the only COVID-oriented film to release where it's it's not done in a way that feels brash or rude or callous. I think Borat 2's inclusion of it, it's, it's very brief, but it ties it together nicely. The Giuliani stuff, uh, Cohen did an interview on, I think it was some morning chat show in America, and all he said about it was, it is what it is, and he wants the audience to decide what we think of it. And I think, I mean, it's pretty clear. I, I don't know what you guys think. You might disagree, but I think it's, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it like Cohen said, it is what it is. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about that, though. Yeah, the in terms of the, the ending, I, I was surprised by that, actually. I didn't really expect any, like, major you know, sort of big punchline to it, but that's how I felt it was. It was a really good punchline, which I didn't actually even feel being set up, which which made it so effective, really. Um, uh, no, I, I didn't feel that was too distasteful, to be honest. Uh, I mean, as with a lot of it, the character himself was more the butt of the joke. Uh, it's, it's, I didn't feel like it was like, you know, making fun of, of any real death or anything like that, you know? Um, in terms of the Rudy Giuliani stuff, um, I, I suppose... It wasn't a massive surprise since I'd seen so much discussion about it on social media prior to having seen the film, um, but I was really glad to have actually seen it, you know, in motion for myself as opposed to that one screenshot that was floating around. And um, yeah, like you said, you and, you know, 
and as he said, uh, it is what it is. Um, certainly that entire segment felt pretty greasy. Um, you know, I can't say conclusively. It's, it's, it's an edited film, you know, so I, I only saw what they showed me. But um, it didn't look good. I can say that much, you know. It, 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 it was strange, to say the least. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I pretty much echo what you guys said about the coronavirus joke. Like, I think it's in good taste. I don't think it goes too far. It's a little thing at the end. It works well. With the Giuliani stuff, I I am more, oh, how do I word this one? Um, it is a, like, I think I recognize this and, you know, as being an edited film um, and online, especially with the Twitter discourse, there's a lot of like details that they set up narratively to the audience that they're like, oh no, Rudy Giuliani like knew all this. He didn't watch the film up to this point. So like, I think I am much more in the big camp of like, it's not like good by any means, um, but I would say like, we need to take this into context, especially with the wider discussion outside the film and what this means for like larger context. Take this into context of what it is, what the actual situation was and look at it not as like the narrative part of the film that this is but what the actual actions were not that it's you know not bad but we cannot like erase that because like politically that creates a better narrative if that makes sense like and not you know not standing up for him he's a piece of shit you know generally um i think you can listen to this podcast enough and know what side of the political spectrum i fall on um so definitely not standing up for him but i think to look at an edited piece of footage that is meant to convey this like the goal of the joke, the whole point of the segment was to get to this joke and say, oh, they got to that joke and then try to take that to a wider context. It's a slippery slope. It's not even that it's not there, but like be aware of that and really like critically think about it, if that makes sense. Like don't just blindly say, oh, they got to the joke they wanted to. So that would just must like wider context. There we go. Like, you know, I think this is a slippery slope that really like should be analyzed before you go on Twitter, look at one screenshot and be like, oh, he's over, like can't, well, he should be canceled for other reasons anyway. But like, before you come to a judgment based off one screenshot, actually watch it and actually think about what the situation is. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to actually be able to see it before anything on Twitter leaked. And they actually, in the, in the screener, when they sent the screeners, they specifically said, and I'm sure you guys saw pic these pictures circulating on Twitter, but they said, don't reveal anything, please wait until the premiere. I don't know if they knew that there were gonna be people that took screenshots and post them on Twitter. Obviously they probably did. And they were just trying to drum up a little bit more of that marketing buzz. And honestly, some of these big sites, they have an entertainment division and they have a news division. And it, it would be really hard for some one of the entertainment guys to not tell the news guys what's going on. Cause I saw it and my first reaction was, wow, am I really one of the first people to be aware of this because it had not been reported in the news until those screenshots leaked. And so I was lucky enough to kind of be able to make up my own mind rather than just see the screenshots first and then go back and watch that film. But honestly, at first, like it was a lot of the shock, but like I, like Carson said, looking back on it, it was good and it was it was definitely like a bad thing, but it wasn't as, um, as career ending or as like potentially, especially because like I said, I if you guys have listened to this you guys can probably tell that i'm i'm fairly liberal as well and knowing how at least most members of the republican party especially the trump era republicans are able to kind of brush things off and get away with a lot on it like looking back on it maybe like in the i'm sure like in the initial moments and i'm sure everyone else felt this way too they're like okay this is gonna end giuliani's career but looking back on it and kind of seeing how the discourse formed and going back and re-watching that scene 
it's really not going to do much. It's already actually fallen kind of out of public consciousness. It really, it lasted Thursday and a little bit of Friday. And right now we're recording Saturday. I, I haven't seen anything on the news about it today. So take that as what you want. I think it's, you know, I, I don't think they set out to sort of frame him in that light. I think that's just happenstance regardless of political agenda for the film. I think it's just, it's it's sort of freakish in a way that it, it happened, but it, it also, it, it brings the narrative to this weirdly, you know, it, it brings it to a conclusion that otherwise would have been a bit clunky and a bit muddled. I think... Um, the the sort of shock factors diminished already. I think it, it, it was a nice bit of publicity for the film, however horrible it may be. Um to, to an extent I think it it's it's already left the public eye, you know. The, in 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 this world, especially how fast the news cycle goes and how quickly things come in and out of it, it's sort of you know, it's yesterday's newspaper, isn't it? That's it's just one of those things where it's I'm trying I'm trying to figure out the words to say it because it's it's a genuinely shocking moment that has already lost its shock value, not because of anything the film does wrong, but because of how we have to adapt to this new cycle and to how we, we deal with information of this sort of fast frequency. It's, it's really strange. I think that speaks to a larger like issue with this film in like the modern social context is like none of the, nothing in this film is shocking like um was said before like america at this point wears its you know identity on its sleeve we have white supremacy in, in the streets mm-hmm. you know like, we have all these insane events we have a president who literally like you know pick a you know pick a category and he's done a ton in it you know it's like horrendous every day everything that comes out in the news cycle to where nothing is shocking so things like this just come and go very casually. Having these casual like meditation on American society and the darker aspects like in the first film just doesn't work because we know how shitty America is. We know how bad it is. We know how bad everyone here is. We know how bad our beliefs are. Like we know how bad our government is. We have these details now. So Borat 2 is no longer like trying to find revelations on that. It's just kind of showcasing it, which is far less impactful. It has elements of obviously it has those political elements and that they're, they're the ones the moments that are going to get talked about the most but there are scenes within that <laughs> without political regard or anything like that it's they are very funny like when they go to the plastic surgeon or they go to the cake shop there's little bits like that that sort of call back to the first bar of what the first bar was where it was interactions with just regular people or people starting their own business and stuff like that there wasn't anything um politically motivated or motivated at all behind those scenes it was just sort of going to here we'll see if we can get something funny and those scenes work really well plastic surgeon um especially was kind of horrifying but i think the the political stuff's definitely going to take center stage on this one especially it was the the republican convention when borat runs in dresses a klansman that's probably the most shocking thing I've seen. I think that far exceeds anything shock value-wise that the first one offered up. I can't think of anything he's done before or since that's sort of on that level. I don't know if you guys agree, but I think I that's, mean, you know. Just in my opinion, that um, that naked wrestling scene in the first one is really, that's an all-timer for me. And I, that's that was something I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Even just thinking about it right now, um, that's something that, that always makes me laugh. So I, that's Honestly, when I say the peak of Borat 1, that's always what I'll refer to because that was just comedically, that was just the most shocking, the just 
out of the blue thing that could happen. But yeah, I do feel that also how this film ages is going to be interesting to see because right now we're living through all these things. And well, Borat 1 is going to age very well because there's always going to be those traits in America. Um, and also because it's very comedically driven. It, it's never going to, it doesn't have, or it's not going to lose as much social relevance as this one may. Because I don't know if we're going to view this as an accurate time capsule or if we're going to end up saying like, okay, this was just... Um, it was too politically for its time and it's not well it's all about how our especially american politics evolves from now on and i feel like that's going to define whether or not this film ages well and i just want to ask kyle and ewan because i know like me and carson are american we've lived in america our whole lives but how do you guys think about this film compared to the first one in terms of how it views america because i know at least in the first film at least maybe i don't think twitter was around uh the internet was there, but it wasn't kind of as prominent and there wasn't as much global connection as there is now. So I'm sure now you guys are more familiar with American culture in general, but back then I'm not sure how, how eye-opening that first film was to you guys. Well, the internet, obviously, since the original film came out, has only only ever kind of made, the internet's just become this massive bridge you know, for the world. Um, so pop culture is, feel like as soon as something goes out there be it uh you know a song a movie a, a tv series or just news obviously because it reaches us all on every platform constantly so quickly and also goes away from these platforms so quickly that has definitely changed i definitely think the element of surprise um is missing a little bit purely because you know back when the when borat one came out going to see it at the cinema you did not know exactly what you were in for, unless, you know, someone had specifically spoiled everything for you. But even then, you know, um, it's like watching so many other types of films, you know, it's not like you have to wait for a magazine to see what a character looks like in the next Star Wars movie or anything like that, right? You know, this stuff just comes out all the time. But as an outsider from New Zealand, yeah, no, I feel it definitely, it, it lines up a lot with what I see online just from regular people you know just general commentary but it just sort of cements that all the more by having this narrative and by having these characters it really is just kind of an intensified reflection of all that kind of thing I think. I think for me because I'm from Britain and we've got our own set of issues looking into this whole American debacle it's the, the first film does a great job of showing like fringe groups and sort of the dark underbelly of American South, the American South, um, but that seems to have consumed the majority, and that's just the new norm now. And it's kind of terrifying to see. And I think what Borat does especially well is it's sort of, in 10 years' time, it'll act like a time capsule. If we compare the first Borat with the second Borat, the, the, the difference is night and day, but those people haven't changed. They're just more not accepted into modernity and modern life but they are more prevalent they're they're far more in interconnected than they were before because now they're seen as sort of you know not not quite the edges of the darkest bits of society but now they're just sort of coming into the center of it and it's really it is quite scary to watch because it, it's starting to happen in my country with all these you know i don't know how to word it but it's starting to happen in our country it's it, it's a shock and watch it really is terrifying because I, we have different bits of culture in this country where it's sort of like a bit weird and a bit zany and a bit strange, but we don't have anything in the mainstream that we can point out and say, well, that's just 
beyond comprehension. Whereas with Borat, the second feature film, a lot of the stuff that I couldn't comprehend in the first film is now this majority. It's this sort of prevalent part of the system. And it's, it's really, really scary. Let's move on to On the Rocks. So faced with a sudden doubt about her marriage, a young New York mother teams up with her larger-than-life playboy father to tail her husband. Oh my gosh, do you look beautiful. Cliff, how's your mom's hip? Good, thanks. Good. He thinks you're my girlfriend. Rice. Been busy? Yeah. Dean's traveling with clients all the time, and I'm just the buzzkill waiting to schedule things. Just, I'm so stuck. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. A woman's at her most beautiful between the ages of 35 and 39. Great, so I have many months left. So I know this film premiered in the New York Film Festival and had a theatrical release October 2nd. And now it's finally getting its Apple TV release, which is the first, I think, narrative feature film collaboration between A24, Apple and Sofia Coppola. So I know it's been getting some praise, but also some like mixed reviews as well, more on Twitter. So what did you guys think about this film? I thought it was great, honestly. I mean, like, I've got a real fascinating love for New York, and I think that's because of, you know, films from Woody Allen, and then recently I watched Girlfriends from Claudia Wheel. But I, I feel like I'm riding on the coattails of Americanisms because I, I do have a fascination with drama films that focus on, you know, these larger-than-life characters set in New York, and I think On the Rocks does that very well. Um, Sophia Coppola is a director. I've, I've seen Lost in Translation. I think everyone has. Um, that's solid. That's a really good film. I think the other films I've seen from her, Somewhere in the Bling Ring, they're, they're similar character studies, but not as strong. Where On the Rocks succeeds, I think, is the characters that she has to play around with are much more grounded. They're very simplistic almost, but they, they work really well because of the chemistry between Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. And I think that's probably the strongest part of the film for me. Yeah, just to be honest, I'm not a big Sofia Coppola fan going into this. I did the review on the website. I watched it at a New York Film Festival. Um, even if her plots are not necessarily like about everyday life, she really like decides to capture everyday life and like the mundane of life in a way that I just generally find unengaging. Like the craft is normally pretty good. The cinematography is normally pretty good, but I just lack like a hook and that emotional like fire from her films normally. Uh, so I was really pleasantly surprised with On the Rocks. It starts off a little bit slower. It takes its time to build, um, but it reaches a third act that I found genuinely moving. I think the performances from both Bill Murray um, and Rashida Jones is are really, really fantastic. Um, and I just like that the screenplay actually like went somewhere. Like it actually got to a big third act, at an emotionally satisfying conclusion. Um, and I was, I just found this one really, really charming. This is honestly one of my favorite Sofia Coppola films uh, because of that, which I know I'm probably in the minority of. Um, but as a director who I don't normally love, I really like this one. Yeah, I have similar feelings. I feel like I maybe didn't love it quite as much as the rest of you. Um, but having said that, I, I did enjoy it. You know, I didn't in any way 
think it was a bad film. It was kind of lacking her her sort of flair and style. Um, it was definitely a more conventional film than I'm used to from Sofia Coppola. But having said that, being more conventional, I think actually kind of worked for it. Um, I did find it to be a very kind of cozy watch, you know. It, it doesn't necessarily go anywhere really out there or have any like really big groundbreaking emotional messages necessarily. But what it does have, it works really well with. Um, I, I think the the dynamic between Rashida Jones and Bill Murray works really well. They have chemistry. And I, I like very much that they have this relationship, which is clearly father and daughter, but also two separate adults who have ended up living very separate lives and have very different perspectives. But they still have the father and daughter dynamic. It's a sort of this, this double header thing. And I've, I really enjoyed that. And um, it, it's good, even if it's not great. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I don't get me wrong, I gave this film a slightly positive review, but honestly, this film, because I know you guys were saying actually that, well, first of all, I, just to make clear, I am not, this is my first uh, Sofia Coppola film, and I need to watch Lost in Translation, that's a big blind spot for me, but at least from what I noticed, I know you guys said it was good to have her be more conventional, but as someone who's coming in with this being my first Sofia Coppola film, I found it to be very uninventive and unambitious. And honestly, personally, ambition is something that like kind of like really draws me into a film. Like when a film is ambitious, like that's when I know it's for me. But this film just seemed unambitious. In terms of at least the surface level story was like pretty inconsequential, I'd say. However, I do appreciate how like there were a lot of conversational moments in the films which uh, Coppola used to kind of like um, talk about like the female and like male roles in society and just kind of like peeling back those social constructs uh, with the conversations between um, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. So I liked that part of it, at least those conversations. But I found that the overall plot, I really don't understand how you thought that the third act was like the emotional, like the whole, like a very cathartic, because I found it to be actually like, it was okay, it was building up a little bit. And then the third act kind of was just like a letdown, like, oh, okay, it's just this, like, whatever and like I said the surface level story didn't really appreciate it however the performances were great and the the conversation like the the points she was trying to make came through clearly and I, I liked the way that she conveyed those points but also I just feel like the visual uh like the visuals like obviously like I, like I said I haven't seen any uh, other Capolam films but just from like seeing stills and clips it seems like this is a pretty blander visual style for her and I found it like it, I've seen quite a few other Apple TV productions. And it really seems like one of those films where she just ran it through the Apple TV plus machine in terms of just the visual. Cause there was, once again, there was no ambition in terms of the visuals. And I just found it quite, quite bland. See, I find it interesting that you didn't like the lack of ambition. Cause actually I think that's something I appreciate about the film to a point. And that sounds probably a little bit strange, but this is a film that has this like really grounded emotional like base of this relationship between a daughter and her father very dysfunctional um, and I like the fact that it doesn't try to craft this big over the top you know like plot that loses a sense of reality because I found the story and the emotions worked best when they were really based in reality I think the story of her dealing with her her husband's possible cheating act as like a great almost Trojan horse I mentioned in my review uh, for a larger context story and larger like look at not just the relationship with her father but how that has like affected her later on in her adult life 
Um, I don't know, it's just something like the third act of this film, there's that big emotional dialogue scene between the two actors. And it just, I mean, it moved me. I was almost on the verge of tears. Um, it's nothing to where it's trying to create something big that you really like need to think about, but it's such like an honest, and I felt like authentic expression of like a really tragic human condition that it just moved me like to my core, like really deep down this film affected me. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's just one of those things where it's like, you're either going to get hooked by the film and that's gonna hit you based on your life experiences and you know what hooks you, or if you're looking for something with more depth, yeah, I could see this missing for you. Um, but I found it thrived in its simplistic approach to emotions and haunting like ideas. So yeah, I think that's just really just what you look for in a film. And unfortunately that's not really, I mean, I like I said, I appreciate it. I gave it a positive review but that's not really what kind of brings the film to a next level for me. And not to be cynical or anything, but at least the third act, the fact that it's in Mexico and that it's like at this really nice resort and all just there, it really didn't add much to the film. And at least from my point of view, like I said, not to be cynical, but it seemed like Coppola were just like, look, we have all this Apple money. Where can we go? That's a great place to shoot and just have fun. And so they went to Mexico. But like I said, things like that, just it seemed like if she... She just, she's like, okay, I, I have all these resources. Like she could have taken greater risks. I mean, does anyone else have any counterpoints or things to say? But Yeah, I think in, in regard to the performances, especially because I don't really think we've touched on that. I think um, Murray and Jones have such great chemistry, but I, I, I don't think that's because of the strength of the writing. I think that's because of the consistency of the performers. These, these are performances that, these two have done before Bill Murray playing that, you know, suave bachelor, the older gentleman. He's done that before and he does it well. And I really enjoyed him in On the Rocks as that suave bachelor who is by himself and he's living the high life. But it's it's nothing out of the ordinary for him. He could probably do that in his sleep. He's done it often. Um, it's a nice role. I enjoyed it. But I, I sort of, I don't know, I really like Bill Murray. I, I'd say he's one of the all-time greats, but I, I do wish he'd sort of, you know, take that little extra step further and give us something that we're not expecting or a role that sort of spins us towards, you know, something we wouldn't expect. Um, but you can't knock the chemistry as with Procedure Jones. Um, Marlon Wayans gives a good support and performance. I feel like he's not touched on as much as he should have been and he's a bit underdeveloped, but it's it's actually, I think it's quite nice to see him back in sort of the spotlight, back in these roles. You know, he provides that necessary supporting performance and he does it well. I think the cast on the whole is sort of, it's tightly put together. It's very enjoyable, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think this is one of those, you know, all time great memorable performances from any of the cast, but it, it gets the job done. It's, it, it's competent, but in a good way. Yeah. For me, I guess it was a bit like a McDonald's cheeseburger. You know, you know what you're getting. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it tastes how you expect it to taste. Everything's there. It's it's always going to be the same, pretty much. It's it's fine. It's perfectly fine. You know, it didn't it didn't blow my socks off. Um, but at the same time, it was enjoyable. You know, it's a cozy little watch. Uh, something you might chuck on Netflix. I, I would certainly hope her next film is maybe a little more ambitious, a little more stylistic, a little more out there. Um, but hey, not not every single film a filmmaker makes needs to necessarily 
absolutely smash the last one in terms of ingenuity and that kind of thing so you know in, in an offensive film i enjoyed my time with it i, I won't be re-watching it and re-watching it like i might with um uh, lost in translation but that's okay you know that's okay finally let's talk about synchronic You know, they say we see everything once in this gig. Pretty sure we've never seen this. I think they need help. You all right? I'm fine. What's going on with you? I want to know that there's meaning in the things I do. Two New Orleans paramedics' lives are ripped apart after encountering a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre otherworldly effects. So what did you guys think about this one? Because I know this is coming from two filmmakers who have worked in low budget sci-fi for a while now. And I'd say this was kind of their big jump. They had definitely bigger actors, uh, a bigger budget, bigger names involved at all parts of the cast and crew. So what did you guys think about this film? Well, I'm a huge fan of their films. Um, I feel that they're a duo who does a lot with a little. Every time I go into their films, I know that there will not be these big sweeping, big budget things, but what they do have are really good ideas. You know, I'll sit down and I'll have a look at the two, three sentence synopsis and go, oh, I want to know, you know, what they do with that, how, how they do that. They, they have a really good hook for me usually. And this one in particular, once, once I heard the general plot synopsis, I thought that sounds awesome. And it did, it does deliver. Um, I feel like maybe I'm not quite sure what kind of essence was missing that made me enjoy it as much as say the endless or, or resolution. Um, but it does have some very cool ideas. It manages to pull them off pretty well considering the smallish budget. Um, and there's some really cool filmmaking going on in there. Um, I'm really interested to see what you guys think about all of it. This is my first Muirhead and Benson film that I've seen. And I definitely want to check out the endless. That looks really fun. Um, as far as Synchronic goes, I think it's a very solid science fiction thriller type piece. I think it goes a, a lot better than similar types of films we've seen in the past few years. I, th I thought a lot about Bright while watching this, and that was, you know, that's that's just a disaster of a film. But Syn Synchronic is very good. I really enjoyed my time with it. I thought it has good performances. Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan are very good. I, th I thought they, Mackie definitely takes center stage. He, he rises to the plate. I think the directors really grasp the metal on this one with the bigger budget and the bigger actors. They, they've really managed to make a good job of a, of a, a very opportune situation where they have the chance to prove themselves as these, as a good directing pair. And they do that generally rather convincingly. I'm looking forward to seeing what else they can do. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty good film. And yeah, same here. I, I'm definitely in you guys' camp where I, I did like it. I'd actually compare, go to compare it as kind of the inverse of On the Rocks, where it's a very ambitious film. Um, the times where it's like more about the plot, it pulls those ideas off well. But I found that the conversation, like when, because there there's obviously like, there's parts where they just kind of sit down, have conversations. I found those parts to be a little bit lacking and they could have had a little bit more depth on the level of kind of the ideas that they were exploring. Because it's a, it's a time travel pill, basically. Not I mean, We're doing spoilers here, but it's a time travel pill. And I found that those 
sequences were pulled off very well and that they definitely show that these are two directors that could definitely go and work with the highest budgets and pull them off and be successful. Um, Cause they were actually able to explore some really interesting ideas in ways that visually it seems like it may have a big budget but like then if you think about it like you can tell that it, it isn't a big budget but the fact that they can provide the illusion that it has such a big budget that's always a great quality to look for in indie directors because you can see that they'll be able to go up the ladder pretty quickly um but yeah i just i found the conversations a little bit unengaging they could have been done better but overall this was my first film of theirs i haven't watched the endless either um but that has been something that has been on my watch list for a while now so it will compel me to check the endless out as well as kind of like keeping an eye on them to see what they do in the future. I don't know if they have any films in production because I do know that this one was actually made, I think 2018 around then. Then it showed at TIFF apparently got mixed reviews and then they recut it and now they're, they're finally releasing it. But yeah, that's, those were my general thoughts on it. Have you seen any of their other films? Nope. There are bits that felt a bit clunky and a bit too sentimental for me. Um, not not to spoil it, but the finale felt a bit, you know, on the nose for that relationship between Mackie and Dawn's daughter. I thought that could have been a bit better developed or at least changed up a bit, but it it is what it is. It doesn't detract from the main narrative, which was overall very compelling. It was interesting. Yeah, it would have just been nice to see something that wasn't a bit predictable. I don't think the actual where the plot goes is predictable. I think the relationship between those two characters just feels a bit humdrum and a bit, you know, this has to be done to set up later bits, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. It just, it would have been nice if there was a bit more depth to that. I think, uh, you know, the the uncle that's always looking out because the dad's not cool. That It just feels like a bit, you know, generic, I guess, but it it does the job. It gets it done and that's fine, I guess. Yeah, I felt where the, the film really shone was, um, was I mean, goes without saying, the time travel, um, you know, just time travel in itself is not inherently interesting. It's It's been done plenty. But what I found really engaging was the actual kind of mechanics of it, you know, um, how they actually go about going back and and figuring out how it works. You know, this is a, a complete mystery to them. It's this, this bizarre designer drug. And they're kind of going in blindly, you know. They're they're risking life and limb um, to do this to to find uh, his daughter, and that's really fun, you know. People, like you said, uh, you and people might find a little bit lackluster in terms of the um, the actual characterization, and yeah, it is a little bit more weak on that side. But um, the thing I went into with this film really was to see how are they going to actually explore that premise of this drug that sends you back in time and then you come back. What are they gonna do with that? And at least on that level, um, it was really quite fun and um, they managed to do some pretty cool stuff considering it was, yeah, not this giant Hollywood blockbuster. It's um, it's a relatively small independent sort of film and it feels that way, but also feels bigger than it actually is. Um, and my, my hat goes off to them for, for pulling it off as they usually do. Um, and yeah, I, I think you guys who haven't seen, well, that's all of you actually, isn't it? Who haven't seen their previous films. Yeah, each of them has something really to offer in that way of, okay, here's this, this cool little premise. How the hell are they going to do anything with that? They, they usually seem to find a way to maybe make it go, whoa, oh, cool. Okay, that's neat. 
I'm glad they pulled it off here too. And I'm really excited to see what they do next because, um, well, it's been the case after everything they've done. Mm-hmm. Not to fanboy too much, but hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like same kind of back to what Ewan was saying. Like, I feel like this was really one of those films where like, it was like the big ambitious idea. And then to give some like emotional resonancy to the film, they kind of just went and plugged in the generic whole family, oh, daughter, all that stuff, conflict, their subplot. And which has been seen a million times before because the ideas presented overall haven't, those are brand new. That's why they're very ambitious, very well pulled off. But the, the family dynamics, as Ewan was saying, they've been seen a million times before in a million blockbusters. And those parts really just left me a little bit cold. At the very least, the, the time travel aspect is original. And I think that's something that doesn't get enough credit. I don't think it will get enough credit, but it, it's odd to see a time travel film made with, you know, generally modest budget that that comes across as something that isn't just oh there's a device here that they get inside of and then they go back time traveling it's nice that it it depends on its location and you know it moves itself around and it keeps everything fresh and lively because you never really know what we're going to experience and neither do the characters and it keeps that sort of keeps that the pacing alive so to speak it keeps everything there's a lot of guesswork that the audience have to take part in and i think that's very beneficial to the film to keep us guessing and to keep us not knowing where it's going to go and it it does it sort of with ease and i'm very impressed by that so i'll throw out a question and to be clear i've not seen the film or i've not watched a trailer for the film i know really nothing about this film but i found the choice to put this out in the theatrical market right now like very questionable and i was wondering if you guys thought like this is a film that will connect to wider audiences to where it could find an audience if it went to vod or if it was just like a normal theatrical year let's say where you know theaters were open and people were really you know down to go to theaters right now because for me that makes it seem like this studio didn't have faith in the film so they threw it in this really crappy market just to kind of get rid of it but it sounds like you all really like the film so do you think that's just because like you like film and that's kind of like we all live in like this you know film twitter circle like do you think like it's because of that or do you think that general audiences would have liked this and this could have found an audience I actually think that if this had a, a solid marketing budget, well, first of all, those studio worries may have been, because like I said, I, I haven't seen the TIFF cut. I don't think anyone else has seen the TIFF cut, but I, I know like in some of our, our conversation, like our chats, our wider chats, um, we've seen a couple of people say like, oh, I saw the TIFF cut, wasn't really a fan of it. So that may have been kind of like the root of all these like studio worries, but I feel like the product they ended up having if they had actually put a marketing budget behind it and if the circumstances were obviously not during the pandemic, I feel like this could have actually found a pretty mainstream audience. It had two mainstream actors. Um, like I said, on these days, actors don't have much pull, but at least the type of film they make, like they would probably have a fan base. Um, and I feel, honestly, I feel like it would definitely fall into that vein of like kind of like Nolan where it's like big ideas, but they are brought down a little bit to mainstream audiences so that it's digestible for the mainstream crowd. So I feel like if it was if it was um, pushed properly in normal times, I feel like this could have gone on to be kind of like a sleeper hit, in my opinion. But what do you guys think? Yeah, sleeper hit for sure. Or at the very least, in, in the climate it's been released now, it, it definitely has the makings of a sort of, a couple of years down the line, it might be a bit of a cult film. Uh, maybe it's got a big of an audience to sort of get out of that cult status. I, I would hope so, because I feel like these two filmmakers are inevitably going to make something big and sort of hit their stride. 
as far as the the talent inside of the film goes, like Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan, um, it's not, especially for Mackie, who's been in a couple of Marvel films, this isn't something that he can, what's the word? It's not something he can approach studios with and say, oh, hey, I made this, because most of them are going to be like, okay, right, it's a time travel film, science fiction. Whereas Jamie Dornan, you know, he did Fifty Shades of Grey, so this is probably a step up for him. Um, I don't know. It it feels like a film that should have such a wide audience and a big release, and I I don't think it'll get it because a few of the elements in that film might be a bit too left of field for more contemporary immediate audiences. But I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I feel pretty similarly. Um, I, I feel pretty bad for it, as I feel bad for so many films right now, which are basically either having to go out into the the cinema wasteland of, of empty empty theaters um or getting put onto vod and maybe aren't really finding the audiences that they might you know at least with people just turning up to a movie because it's on that kind of thing um but diego like you said i think it can definitely find some kind of uh, some kind of cult following uh and i feel that's kind of been the way with a lot of their films simply because this this smaller scale um and they're quite left field um but hopefully eventually one of them really does get get its hooks in the mainstream because they, they have a lot of talent you know um they as a narrative part of the film the sort of emotional character part of the film shows maybe they don't necessarily land on every single aspect but they they have the ambition and um and i, I really hope something really kind of explodes for them because um they've got it so for this episode, we're going to have a bonus news segment where we're going to talk about kind of just relevant things that have been going on in the industry, especially during these difficult times. And today we're going to discuss kind of what's been going on with James Bond because they were, it was delayed quite a few times. It's in April 2021, but MGM apparently was trying to shop it around to other streaming services and some picked up on it, but eventually it seems to have come to a standstill. And I feel like whatever happens with this film is going to kind of define um, the theatrical experience for the next couple of years or so. So what are you guys' thoughts on how this has played out so far? It shows where we're headed, doesn't it? Because I think it was, what, scheduled for April release 2020 and then November. And now it's just, I don't, I don't know what the state of it is currently. It's, it's a project that's been mired by casting difficulties, director changes, production standstills, Daniel Craig breaking his ankle, Danny Boyle leaving. It feels like a production nightmare. So I can see why MGM have started to shop it around streaming sites. It sort of, you know, I think the access to content, I think it would do fairly well, you know. Um, I can't imagine a big blockbuster coming out on something like Netflix, though. You know, you've got, well, you do have blockbusters coming out on Netflix, but nothing to the extent of James Bond, an established franchise of over 50 years, coming out into people's living rooms, and it's to, to not, not, not to sound too rose-tinted nostalgia about it, James Bond is very much, it's a series you see in the cinema, you don't you know, mm-hmm. you, you don't think, ah, oh, I can't wait for James Bond to pop on Amazon Prime it's not, maybe that's just me being old and repulsed by the idea of watching No Time to Die in my, in my living room but it definitely felt like sort of the last bastion of hope for cinema. Not not to sound too sort of incredibly 
over the top about it. It's one of those big releases that should have received a cinematic release, and I think it's it, it's a sign of the times that we're in that it has started looking for streaming services. I think at this point, MGM probably just want to get it out. Yeah, this is pretty, um, I think it goes without saying, this is pretty unexplored ground um, for, for everybody, you know. Um, but having said that, I think Tenet's release is has been a pretty good demonstration of how this can go. Um, I haven't looked at numbers, but if, correct me if I'm mistaken, I think it didn't do particularly well with its release. You know, some places haven't even had it released. I think it's probably wise for them to at least be shopping it around, even if it doesn't end up actually going onto video on demand. Um, it is certainly a franchise that I'm used to seeing um, at the cinema. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of yesterday's Marvel movie or that kind of thing. I think see, I kind of get the feeling that it has kind of tapered off with the last few releases. Um, clearly, there still is a demand for people to go and see the latest James Bond um at the cinema but um maybe not nearly as much as some some bigger franchises in recent years so personally i can only speak for myself um but yeah i think it probably would would be wise to work out some kind of deal because it really would be a shame to see this movie just get delayed and delayed and delayed there are far more important things going on you know than than getting to see a movie but at the same time they're gonna have to let this thing go out in some way soon otherwise it's just going to be a a money pit you know yeah i think there's multiple ways you can look at this i don't think anyone wants to see james bond at, like on home in like an ideal situation right i think this is a film like i genuinely want to see in theaters um but something has to give eventually i will say number one i don't think that this is necessarily as big of news as it seems like it is i think in this current modern day situation especially after tenet kind of proved the theatrical mar theatrical market isn't there I'm assuming every big studio and every film really is at least seeing what they could get on streaming and at least exploring the options and keeping their ideas open. Um, so I don't think this is necessarily saying like, oh, it's going to go to streaming. Oh my God, it's happening. I think they were just probably shopping options, which is smart. Um, they've set, I believe, a new 2021 release date. So hopefully it sticks to that if it's safe and if theaters are open. Um, but ultimately, you know, like something has to give. A lot of people are really pissed at Disney when they put Soul, they announced it was going to Disney Plus. But ultimately, every studio has a lineup for, you know, the next however many years set in stone, things in production, things they're working on releasing. You can only push your entire slate back, you know, so many times before it just becomes too much. Um, so I agree. I'm someone who's like, I really want to see this in theaters. If come a year, things are not necessarily, you know, they, they could be better if they're not up to where this movie is going to make enough money back or, you know, it's not going to be safe or, you know, some audiences, including myself, would be alienated because we don't, I'm not going to a theater during this time and the pandemic is still a thing. Like, I respect the choice for it to go to streaming. I think you have to be understandable. Like, studios need to make money back. Studios need money. Um, so you can't just constantly say, and also because every time they delay this, they're delaying the money they get from this film, what they've invested. They have to keep their studio running. They have to keep paying for marketing. They have to keep making these, those other films in the future. And that money is supposed to come from big blockbusters a lot of the time, like No Time to Die. So I really cannot blame them. In an ideal world, you know, yes, we would see this in theaters. In an ideal world, we wouldn't be in the middle of a global pandemic though. So you kind of have to be understandable and be, I think, more forgiving to studios um, than I think a lot of people currently are. One of the reasons is I'd say it's like so like big is because this is kind of like if a film the size of Tenet was going to be sold to a streaming service, 
this is not some hundred like even if we want to the point where coming to america too um it it gets sold for 125 million on um, trial of chicago 7 50 million so these 100 million marks aren't that impressive anymore as you guys were saying but mgm i don't know how successful they are because i think it kind of got shot down but they were looking to sell it for 600 million dollars and both netflix and apple were considering it for a while now, I know that Barbara Broccoli and Eon, which is the company that holds the rights to James Bond, were really adamant, kind of like Christopher Nolan and Tenet, about getting that theatrical experience and just pushing it back as much as they can. And I think Netflix and Apple are kind of getting cold feet now with the $600, or sorry, $600 million price tag. But I feel like, honestly, we're going to have to see how it goes because there was a time when Disney was like, oh yeah, no, the pandemic's gonna be over by um, by December. We don't need to worry about Soul going on Disney Plus. There was a time when we all thought that it was ridiculous that Fast and Furious was gonna be delayed a year. Like, cause I remember I was like, Jesus, like one year, this is like an exaggeration, like why, maybe a couple months, but like, why are you doing this? And now it seems like if Universal pulled off the smartest move of the entire whole rescheduling, with that film. So it just each each week just changes things. Who knows? Next week they might buy it. And just in regards to Tenet, from my understanding, it actually has been, it's been doing fine, but the place where it's been doing terribly is domestically. Like domestically, I think it, it barely crossed 50 million. And the reason that it's considered doing fine is because apparently overseas it heavily overperformed. Because I know in China and Japan and Asia specifically, it heavily overperformed. Um, but I do know that overseas costs are normally they like Warner Bros. will get less of that percentage. But I feel especially with the whole Wonder Woman and Dune delays, um, Warner Bros. is realizing that, that that was not the way to go. So yeah, that those are just my thoughts on that. Uh, I I wonder what. MGM's breaking point is at what point do they have to hold their hands up and say look we can't release this in the cinemas we've tried streaming avenues what do they do then I I don't really see an easy way out for them I don't think they'll be able to make a profit on this either I mean one situation that's been presented is maybe a company because I know MGM isn't like the like the biggest thing ever they're they're not really doing much apart from the the James Bond films nowadays from what I understand and there's been lots of talk of actually Apple TV Plus purchasing the entirety of MGM, at least uh, at least the film the film division of MGM, and taking that under their Apple TV Plus wing. So I know that that honestly could be a likely option, um, but I don't know how much Apple would be willing to pay. Although depending how things go in the next couple of weeks, I I wouldn't be surprised if that's what ends up happening. Well, I can see this becoming an Apple TV Plus original pretty quickly. I mean, they spent $70 million on Greyhound, let's not forget. And they just spent another $70 million on Cherry. So like they definitely have money to spend. James Bond is an established franchise. And I think this is something that like the studio needs to really kind of get off the ground. Um, I think this is something that the studio service kind of needs right now. I think Apple TV Plus's biggest issue is getting people on the platform actually watching their content. And this is something that I think would, I mean, obviously drive customers to their content. So I think this would be a really good move for Apple TV Plus, if I'm being honest. Um, I could see, I think out of every streaming service, that's the one I see most willing to shell out this money and also the streaming service that would gain the most from this. Yeah, like honestly, looking at 2021 and Apple TV Plus, I feel like 
they could really make a name for themselves as kind of what HBO used to be, which was like the premium tier streaming service um, where it wasn't like a whole amount of content, but the content that was there is high quality, top notch. Cause you'd have James Bond, you'd have um, Cherry, you had, well, Greyhound was left in the summer, but just in the next maybe like year or so, you're going to have James Bond, you're going to have Cherry, you're going to have, um, there's going to be a couple of big new sci-fi shows. Um, the Morning Show, Servant, like all of these are like top tier productions. And I feel like Apple TV Plus could have a hell of a 2021 and really cement themselves as like the place to go for like the premium top tier content. Because let's be honest here, Netflix, yeah, they do have their Manx. Um, they do have their I'm thinking of ending things. But Netflix's reputation as like a premium top tier content service has been kind of ruined by a, like a just a wealth of like just utter trash that they dump out. HBO Max still, I know at least from my, I've seen without the Roku and the Fire Stick add-ons, they've kind of filtered out. Maybe with the whole Snyder Cut thing, um, that'll get some traction again. But HBO Max seems to be petering out. Peacock petering out as well. Hulu has already kind of found a niche as just like the home for like all these TV show reruns. But I feel like the market is primed right now for in the next year for Apple to take that place as like the premium TV or like the premium streaming service. They've had what a hell of a debut year. I mean, it's crazy to think one year into this and we already have that many incredible shows. Uh, movies have been a little bit more mixed, but they've had some good stuff to come out. Like this low key, I think Apple TV Plus is having like a sleeper, like incredible first year of content. Um, so I agree. And I'm so excited. Like Servant just got a season two release date. I love that show. So I'm excited about that. Like, I'm so excited that Apple TV Plus is starting to kind of like branch out and really start to like get going and get the wheels turning. And I just hope that they find the audience because ultimately if they don't find the audience, it's not going to work no matter how good the content is. Yeah, there's there's definitely a massive opening here. Um, I think in the last couple of years with streaming services, people have become, or at least myself, have become pretty disillusioned um, with it sort of segueing into this weird thing, very similar to cable, which is why people even left cable in the first place, you know. Um, I think there's definitely a desire from people to have um, just a small selection of streaming services that they have based on quantity and quality. I mean, that's at least what I look for. I, I want to have just a handful that give me plenty to watch each month that I pay my subscription for. Ideally, I would have one, but that's not the world we live in. Um, so really, for any streaming service to be able to to have yeah quality and quantity is so important to become the next big one and to have these grabs like james bond is really important that's that's a really big opportunity for them so hopefully they capitalize on it and hopefully it goes well for them because i, I would really hate to see all these streaming services continue to to fragment and divide their content and have this really messy labyrinth of finding you know where can i watch season one of this show uh, or how long is this movie going to be available? You know, why doesn't the studio that made this movie have it on their streaming service? You know, that, that's all very confusing. Really, any opportunity for all these these services to consolidate uh, and, and organize their content in a way that makes it really easy to pick who I want to give my money each month. There's a, you know, that's a thumbs up from me. So that was the end of our news discussion. I feel like the next couple of weeks, as I said before, are going to be really imperative to kind of just see the future of the theatrical um, exhibition industry. 
change are going bankrupt, change are closing. So these next couple of weeks are going to be very, very important. But to round out Clappercast, we like to end on some of our latest film and TV recommendations because we're always talking about new releases, but this is a great place to kind of just recommend older things that we've recently watched or just things that we want to give small shout outs to. So uh, Carson, so what have you seen recently that you'd want to recommend? So I've been in film festival hell for the past three months, so it's been kind of hard to see a lot. But one thing I watched recently was The Bride of Frankenstein again. I wrote a feature that will be going up on Filmotomy about the queer subtext of that film. Um, and it's just a masterclass. I think that's genuinely one of the best films ever made, not even as a sequel, but like not even in the conversation of best sequels ever made, but just films in general. That film has so many interesting ideas and it's such a masterclass on tone and tension and thrills, but it's not necessarily like a jump scare horror film, but just like a generally like scary film, not just because the monster, like that's not even the scary part, but the social commentary and the social aspects of it is what is really haunting. It is haunting when you think about it in the context of the time, it is haunting now. Um, it's a film that's always really touched me because of that queer subtext and really kind of breaking it down just made me respect the film even more. It's genuinely fantastic. We're here, it's Halloween week. Uh, celebrate by watching some classic horror and check out The Bride of Frankenstein. Kyle? Yeah, so a film I was lucky to uh, to to review and also do an interview for recently is uh, a documentary that's Nail in the Coffin, The Fall and Rise of Vampiro. I don't know if anybody else here has uh, managed to see that, but um, I've watched it twice in the last month or so, and it, it really surprised me. I know very little about professional wrestling, but essentially it follows... Vampira, who is a Canadian-born professional wrestling legend. He was born in Canada, but later on moved to Mexico, where he became a lucha libre wrestler. Throughout his life, he has been through hell and back and hell and back. If anyone has seen uh, The Wrestler, that's basically his life. He has basically just, you know, think of any bone in your body, he's broken it, as well as as drugs and alcohol and 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 ego as well. Um And I was going into it expecting maybe just kind of like a, a general thing about professional wrestling and a bit about his career, but it really isn't the fluff piece that you might expect. It really digs deep and it's incredible to see this very intimidating guy who, who's got this larger than life persona and you would think would be just this very hyper-masculine guy learn to actually open up and criticize himself and, and crush his ego and in particular admit his wrongdoings of the past and and try to to grow as a person it, it, it just about brought me to tears both times and uh managed to talk to uh vampiro about it and that was really eye-opening to see someone who you would never think would be such an open self-aware person discover how to do that i took a lot from it i i really think everyone who would be even slightly interested in that do check it out and you in I'm going to, I watched this recently because I just finished reading the book, Filth. It's an adaptation of Irvin Welsh's novel of the same name, which was released right on the cusp of 1998, I think. And then the film adaptation came out in 2013. John S. Baird directed it, who did Stan and Ollie a couple of years ago. It's it's about a, a bigoted, horrible, horrible cop um, played by James McAvee very, very well. And it's about his addictions and his his rise and fall as he sort of focuses in on trying to get this promotion so desperately to uh, Detective Inspector. And it's it manages to cram 400 pages of subtext and prose and 
weird fourth wall breaks into a, into a very tight 90 minutes and it's it's incredible it's kind of festive it's kind of christmasy you know we're, we're ramping up for christmas now it's set at christmas and the new year season so it's it's a, it's a christmas classic that hasn't quite come into its own yet brilliant performances a really a really touching message at the heart of it all as well which i don't think gets enough credit about how addiction manifests itself and its impact on the people around us it's 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 been you know it hasn't gotten that mainstream success that i thought it would have given the likes of train spotting but it's it's a very solid adaptation of a, a brilliant book so my recent watching of borat in preparing for borat 2 kind of kickstarted a need for me to because similar to carson and i'm sure kyle as well um i've been dealing with piff i've been dealing with new york i've been dealing with afi as well so i've kind of just been like dealing with all that festival season and i wanted just like a full-out comedic break so I actually put up a couple of like a thing on Twitter, just asking people for comedy recommendations in the vein of Borat and The Hangover. And Alina followed to, she recommended Step Brothers. Um, so I watched that one for the first time. I hadn't seen it a couple days ago. And I, it was one of those ones where it, it's all about the, honestly, when I watch a comedy, kind of like my, my criticism lens kind of just fades away. And I'm just looking at how much can it make me laugh. This is a film that made me laugh a ton. Adam McKay. I'm a very big Adam McKay apologist in his dramatic films, but as a comedic director, he's also a very, he's, he's just a talent like um, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Their performances are just, just hilarious. Like it, it's a great film. And if you ever need something to just a film to like decompress on, just to kind of like, just get all like the dramatic parts out of and analytical parts of your brain, just turn off and you need something comedic. This is, a perfect film to watch. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Clappercast, the global film podcast. So where can we find everyone on social media? I'm uh, at Ewan Gledo on Twitter and Letterboxd. Kyle? Yeah, I'm at Kyle underscore Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R on Twitter. Uh, and mostly everywhere else, actually. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to mention, but can you like mention also like where you write for like what your normal... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. So I, I, I mostly write for Movie Hole. They're at Movie Hole on, uh, on Twitter, moviehole.net. Um, and all my reviews, interviews, that kind of thing goes on there. And Carson? So you can find me on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar, or on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. And you can find me personally on both Twitter and Letterboxd at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A N D A L U Z. And you can find Clappercast, the global film podcast, at, at Global Film Pod on Twitter. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and Clapper LTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all so much for listening. And we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. And one last thing I'd like to mention is that this Halloween, we are going to have a watch party of Hubie Halloween on the newly named Teleparty, which used to be Netflix Party. So if you want to come around and watch Hubie Halloween with us, let us know. And you guys are all invited. Thank you so much for coming on. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find a link in the description below. 
Thank you for listening.